She dusts, vacuums, and mops the floor. But Maureen Ebo wasn't tidying up her home. She had to get a job cleaning another person's home after she says she lost her entire multi-million dollar life savings in Bernard Madoff's alleged Ponzi scam. Before the Madoff scandal broke, Maureen was living a very comfortable life. Her husband, a prominent doctor, died eight years ago and left her with a huge fortune that included homes in Pennsylvania and Florida. A relative suggested she invest the money with Madoff. Her finances in ruins, the 60-year-old widow put shame aside and was determined to survive. She worked a cash register at a concession stand. Then a neighbor offered her a job cleaning her home, and she jumped at it. So the once well-to-do woman found herself working as a maid at the house where she had been a welcomed guest. Maureen was also forced to sell her Florida home, but walked away with almost nothing. Maureen has now moved back full-time to Pennsylvania, where she's landed a small office job earning just enough to cover her mortgage. I've put the word out to all my friends that I would do any type of errands uh, that they wanted done. So for a little extra money, Maureen agreed to wash her boss's car. Maureen says there's no job beneath her. Many cons take people for small amounts of money. Some may rob a family of all the money they save for a vacation, but others can take everything. Money saved for retirement. Money saved to pass along to children after their death. And like Maureen in the Inside Edition clip you just heard, people are left to do whatever work they can get to survive predators like Bernie Madoff. I'm Jim Grinstead. Today we're going to explore how con artists justify their crimes and how they live with themselves after utterly destroying others. It's difficult to know what goes on in the minds of petty con artists. Police rarely investigate their crimes because they don't have the resources to do so, and those arrested spend little time in jail before disappearing. Those who serve longer sentences are easy to locate and allow studies to span many years and multiple conversations. My name is Chuck Gallagher. I was a former CPA. I was convicted of one count of embezzlement and one count of tax fraud for a crime that occurred in 1986-87. Gallagher was speaking to the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. All of a sudden I'm faced with, unexpectedly, the announcement from the bank that you're behind in your house payment. There's my need. Well, where am I going to find the opportunity to resolve this? And multiple opportunities were there, but the easiest one with the quickest solution was tapping into this trust. Now, the third component, rationalization, if somebody said to me, Chuck, would you steal money to solve your problem? No, of course not. But now I would borrow money to solve the problem. So... Being able to put those three parts together creates the three legs of the stool, which gives you a foundation to stand on, and I stood on that foundation. Of course, I sat down at the computer. In those days, it was WordStar or WordPerfect. I, Charles Gallagher, being of sound mind and body, sound mind, not so, body better than today, but nonetheless, being of sound mind and body, do hereby, and I type out a note saying that I'm going to pay back the trust, the Clifford Trust, $2,000 plus 10% interest at the end of April, and stole the money. 
Chuck didn't see himself as a criminal. He saw himself as a decent guy in a tough situation who saw a way through it. This is a common theme in this episode, among the many reasons scammers have to justify their crimes in their own minds. So I paid it back, but I found out it was easy. And I think this is probably true, at least for the now 20 plus years, almost 30 years of kind of looking back at this and seeing other examples. If you once get by with something, you can start to believe in your head the illusion that you're probably always going to get by with it. So as a result of that, I did it again. And I paid it back. And now the rationalization is hard. I mean, this is, this is now good. The unfortunate thing is, and it's, it's easy to look back and see it, it's hard when you're in the midst of it. But the unfortunate thing is, is nothing changed in my relationship. Nothing changed in my relationship with my wife. It was still um, a, a relationship where we both, not blaming her, but we both like the finer things of life. Until he was caught, there were no consequences. Chuck stole money, and even though he paid it back and knew what he was doing was wrong, he continued to do it. He didn't see any reason not to. In fact, if there were any consequences, they were good. He got to hang around with wealthy people who needed a good accountant, and Chuck seemed to know his stuff. So as I began to slowly tap into clients' trusts or retirement plans, either one was a trust of sorts, but as I began to tap into those, my lifestyle increased. And as my lifestyle increased, miraculously, it seemed, we attracted more clients. So it became a, a, a circular process of more tends to beget more, which tends to increase my income, which therefore says, well, I have a greater capacity to pay back, so therefore I need to take more, to steal more, which is really what it was. I called it borrowing, but it wasn't borrowing at all. And, and it became a process that uh, continued for uh, right at three and a half years. I need to get a bit wonky in this episode. What we do know about how criminals justify their crimes comes from researchers who deal in psychology, statistics, and probabilities. Before we dive into that research, there's something you need to know. There's no difference between a white-colored criminal like Bernie Madoff and the person who picks your pocket on the subway. The justifications they all use are the same. Okay, we begin with the theory of neutralization. And it comes from research done in the late 1950s by Gresham Sykes and David Matze. They identified five techniques criminals use to justify their crimes. Those are denial of responsibility, denial of injury, denial of victim, condemnation of the condemners, and appeal to higher loyalties. For example, an individual who engages in theft may use the technique of denial of responsibility by claiming that they were forced. You hear me use the word sucker frequently in this podcast, and I do that for a reason. That's the word scammers use to describe their victims. They are seen to be stupid and deserve to lose their money. Do you feel that you owe anyone an apology? You mean for what? I'm not a 12-year-old kid. That's Anna Sorokin speaking to NBC News. She was also known as Anna DeLavey, and she pretended to be a German heiress and used that lie to steal from friends, companies, and 
really anyone she could. So who, who would I be apologizing to for that? The banks that you tried to take the money from. I don't think they care. Do you think that that was wrong? Yeah, that was definitely unethical, yes. And I would not... Um, I would not encourage anybody else to follow my footsteps. She has similar defiance when it comes to former friend Rachel Williams, who accused Sorokin of sticking her with a $62,000 hotel bill, a charge of larceny in the second degree that Sorokin was ultimately acquitted of. Do you have any interest in connecting with or making up with Rachel? No. That story is just played out, and it's just, it's just not interesting to me. Her intentions are obvious, and she's just trying to write the narrative of her being a victim. Do you see any part of her being an actual victim with the hotel bill? It was an unfortunate situation. I never said, like, I'm right, but, like, I was never planning to defraud her. What do people not know about you that now you have the chance to say? I never really had any malicious intent, and I'm not just, like, this vicious, like, scamming person trying to, like, take advantage of anybody who's just, like, stupid enough to fall for it. Then how do you square... The lifestyle aspect of what people see as the scam, the staying at extremely nice hotels, the shopping, the high tipping. Well, at the time, staying in a hotel made sense for me because I was traveling so much. And it was not like I was not staying like in a biggest penthouse. I was just staying like in a regular room. Anna clearly doesn't feel remorse for what she's done and passes the responsibility for her actions on to others. It's time now to meet Dr. Stanton Salmonow. He spent his career studying criminal intentions. He's a graduate of Yale and the University of Michigan. He's been in private practice and taught for a decade at the University of Michigan. He's an author and a regular speaker. Here he is at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., a place I can highly recommend. If you're in D.C., check it out. Dr. Samanow talks about con artists. The man who said, when I walk into a room, and he's talking about a break and entry. Everything in that room belongs to me. That is not a mental illness. He knows he's in a house that is not his. He looks at the laptop computer, the jewelry, the flat screen TV. In his mind, all these items already belong to him. All he has to do is to figure out how to get them out of there and then how to dispose of them. There is this sense of ownership and entitlement to the extreme. To tell you that they lack a concept of injury to others may appear to state the obvious. If you were to ask some of the people I deal with, who was hurt by what you did? You would get answers like, well, I know the guy missed his stuff, but I have to do the time. And a kid might say, well, you know, if he wanted to keep his jacket, he wouldn't have left the locker open. There is no concept of the ripple effect of injury, the stone in the pond, and the concentric circles of injury that ripple not only to the direct victim, but the indirect victim. A boy that I saw in the Prince William County Juvenile Detention Center he, he had worked at a restaurant part-time, so he knew the schedule. And he knew that late at night they tallied up the receipts and made up the depository for the bank. So he and a friend came into that restaurant just prior to closing, ski masks, gun, rope, 
tied up the two women who were counting up the receipts, made off with the money, stole a car, and left. The next morning, one of these kids, the one I was talking to, in the detention center came back to the restaurant and he said, hey, I heard you guys were held up. Is everybody all right? When I asked him who was hurt, he said nobody. He said there was no blood. There were no broken bones. Nobody got shot. And when I said to him, did it ever occur to you that for those two women, life may never be the same again? That in a place that they thought they were safe, that they had gone to, to work, no longer a safe place. Who knows whether these women will ever even want to go out to work again, or even to leave their house. He just looked at me, kind of wide-eyed and shrugged, and said, well, I never thought of all that. Well, of course, had he thought of all that, it's highly likely I wouldn't have been having that discussion because he wouldn't have been where he was. These are individuals, many of them have told me how religious they are. They will go to church, they will wear a cross, they will read the Bible. However, there is no concept of religion as a guide to life. It is a set of concrete observances. Thus, you pray at 10 and you commit an armed robbery at 1.30. Can this type of thinking be changed? Or are these folks just incapable of realizing the impact they have on other people? That's a good question and researchers are still working on it. Like with other criminals, some do turn their lives around, change their perspective, and take responsibility for their actions. But there's also the theory of drifting. It happens when criminals are put in jail with other criminals, and they feed upon one another about how unfair the world is and why they should have their share of the good life. Is it nature or nurture? Are scammers born that way, or are they the victims of circumstances in which they find themselves? The psychologists I've heard from dismiss the question quickly by saying it's both, and I think that's right. We might all be scammers in the right circumstances, and most importantly, justify our actions to ourselves. If you believe you're not a bad person, one small indiscretion can grow one step at a time. Diane Catani told her story to the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. It began when she joined a small company, helped automate its bookkeeping system, and taught others in the company how to use it. The company trusted her to keep things tight and do the right thing. The company grew, and she began to travel frequently. I was also trying to manage my personal life, the travel, the social responsibilities connected with my husband's career that thrust us into a lot of prestigious opportunities. Um, at the same time, I was having dinner at the White House under the Reagan administration, having dinner with George and Barbara Bush in Hawaii. I was working with their son on the National Crohn's Colitis fundraising campaign. I was consulting, executive coaching with a lot of Fortune 500 companies. So I was just caught in this really fast life in the fast lane. 
and I liked it. The first point that I crossed the line was actually very innocuous. We were traveling out west for the holidays and I got my uh, travel itinerary and I had noticed that they put my personal travel onto my corporate profile, American Express card. And it was not a big deal, just, you know, simple mistake. I went out west for the holidays and came back and thought, okay, well, I'll pay it back. You know, get that first paycheck and I'll pay the company back. But get that first paycheck and I start weighing it out. Well, you got the, all these bills from the holidays and the paycheck. Well, okay, well, next time, next paycheck, I'll pay the company back. And um, in between there, I crossed into that gray area and started down that road of uh, rationalization. out there for the holidays with my family, voicemails, emails, constant interruption, we're trying to snow ski, I have to come in for a conference call, very disruptive, okay, well, we'll just call it a business trip. So um, once I crossed that line, it became easier to rationalize more and more. I stole nearly $500,000 from this company, who not only gave me a wonderful career opportunity, but making what I did more despicable was that they also treated me like family. Simple things in life can get us into trouble. Not quickly, but gradually. The question is, do we know where to draw the line? And do we care enough to find out? Scams and Cons is an independent production. So if you enjoy the podcast, please help us by telling your friends and encouraging them to listen. Scams and Cons is available wherever podcasts are found and at scamsandcons.com. Thanks for listening. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.